verse. They help us to see what it looks like to trust in a God who saves sinners. But before we get into the narrative, we had a few scenes going on, and there were quite a few names that were quite tricky. So here's the four main characters. One, King Hezekiah. He's king of Judah. He's God's people. He's a good guy. Isaiah, he's the author of the book. He uh, speaks to Hezekiah in our narrative. Then we've got the two tricky names. We've got Sennacherib. He's the king of Assyria. Remember the superpower that are swarming in around Jerusalem? They're the bad guys. And then we've got the Rabshakeh. He's the chief of Assyria, the informer to the king. He's one of God's enemies too. There are four main characters. They're, they're who we're going to look at. First then, scene one. Who are you going to trust? Here's the scene. It's 701 BC. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, he's on the rampage. Look at verse 1. All the other fortified cities of Judah have been thrashed. They've been destroyed. They've been wiped aside. The armies are at the gates of Jerusalem where God's people are tucked away inside. They've taken the bride, but they're squeezing on in anyway. And so the king of Assyria sends in his chief, the Rabshakeh, to meet at the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Maybe as you heard that the first time, you thought, that's a pretty random detail to include in the story. And it might mean next to nothing to us, or maybe if you've got a super good memory, much better than mine, then you remember back to Isaiah when we were looking at it before in the early chapters, um, Isaiah chapter three, chapter 7, verse 3, this is what was told to, um, to Isaiah. Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Same place. Why does that matter? Well, 34 years earlier, this was the meeting place for King Ahaz, who was Hezekiah's dad. Same place, same crisis, but what we're going to see is a very different outcome. Because in that moment, King Ahaz, he didn't trust God, and the situation got loads worse. 34 years later, under King Hezekiah, we've seen already that God's people admit failure. They address God and admit failure, and we're going to see today the difference. It's shown up in the same place. They meet in the same place to show the difference between the kings. Now, the Rabshakeh, the chief, he's essentially being tasked with going into Jerusalem and intimidating them into submission. His, his job is to get them to put their hands up and say, come in and have our city. Do you notice the tone in what the Rabshakeh is saying? Just have a look down to verse 4. It's aggressive, it's condescending, it's manipulative, it's coercive. He set out to undermine God. Look at verse 4. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and powerful war? In whom do you now trust? That you have rebelled against me. Behold, you are trusting Egypt, that broken reed of the star. 
which will pierce the hand of any man that leans on it. You're weak, you're unimpressive, you're fragile, you've got nothing on us. Are you really going to trust in God now? See, God uses the Assyrians as an instrument to question his people. Are they going to trust in him? The uh, the chief, uses that word, trust, six times in his little speech. The challenge is clear. In whom do you now trust? And scene one closes. It's all set up. Now, anyone recognise this guy coming up on the screen? Anyone? Little waves if you recognise him? Probably not, I'm guessing. This guy is called Mark Spencer. He is an MP. He's got a specific responsibility within Parliament. Anyone know his specific responsibility? Probably not if you didn't know him. He is the Chief Whip. Now, my understanding of politics is pretty limited. But as far as I understand, one of his main roles is to make sure that a party are voting on particular issues. And he's making sure that the party are, enough of the party are, are voting the right way on particular issues. He whips up. Now, um, one of the things they do as a chief whip is to send out letters to the party to inform them of the issues that are going to be voted on. And the way they uh, stress the importance of the different issues is they're underlined historically and apparently still to this day, it's one underline for an issue that's quite important, two underlines for an issue that is of more increasing importance, and three underlines under an issue on one of these letters is an item on the agenda that must be attended. So if you've heard the phrase, a three-line whip, that's where it comes from. A three-line whip, it must be done. You must be there. You must vote on it. Now, um, I didn't realise that three-line whip wasn't just commonplace. My mum used to tell me it's a three-line whip on some family events, uh, maybe a cousin's birthday or something like that. And I'd say, oh, do I have to come? And she said, yes, it's a three-line whip. And I'd just go, oh, okay, right. I've got to be there. I had no idea about this. So there you go, three-line whip. It's an extreme and important issue, so you must attend. Look, in scene two, we see the chief whip. Verses 12 to 22, the chief whip. The advisors to King Hezekiah, they don't want the chief, the Rabshakeh, to speak in a language that everyone understands. There they are at the wall. The Rabshakeh is trying to speak in a language that everyone understands, but the, the advisors to the king, they want to speak in a language that not everyone understands. But the Rabshakeh, the chief, he's adamant. He wants to whip them up. He wants to try and persuade all the people of the city to go the Assyrian way, not God's way. He makes the point, maybe you heard it in the reading, kind of funny, if Jerusalem gets cut off in famines, then it'll be the people of the city that have to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. That's because... If the walled-off city is broken down, that they can't get any water supply in and out. It will be the impact of the people. Here's a central issue going on as the Rabshakeh addresses the people, even tries to address the crowd. 
Who's going to deliver you? Who's going to deliver you? The word comes seven times, deliver. And he helpfully, he brings out the choice that the people have to make. Who's going to deliver you? The great king? The king of Assyria, who's destroyed all the other kings and gods, whose armies are at the city gates, who've got loads of people rampaging, who's wiped every other god aside? Or will it be this God that Hezekiah is telling them about? He leaves them with the final question, verse 20. Have a look down. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. See what he's saying? Look, no one's delivered so far. No one's delivered on their promise against this great king of Assyria. Why would your God be any different? But just look at the people. Look at verse 21. The people remain silent under the king's instructions. Now, just picture the scene. Imagine being one of those people in the city. Surely in those people's minds is the question, is God really going to deliver us from this? Hey, maybe you know that feeling. When the challenge that you face in life feels so overwhelming, when you just can't see how there's any possibility of resolution, when your situation feels hopeless, if you're put on the spot, who are you going to trust? And you might want to say, I, I trust in the Lord. But in, in the intensity of the moment, in the context of that struggle, when things are overwhelming, when it feels like cities are at the gates, will God really see you through? health issues, financial problems, issues in your family, unfulfilled at work, struggling with pressure. What's going to deliver you? Who are you going to trust? And what do you actually do then, in that moment, when you want to trust God, but it feels so hard, it's overwhelming and you don't know what to do? Well, look, let's have a look at what Hezekiah does. Scene 3, Hezekiah humbled. Here's King Hezekiah. Look at chapter 37, verse 1. For the first time, we most clearly see that in the face of threat and distress and danger, in the midst of despair, when God's being mocked and undermined, he seeks God in humility. That's what he's doing. Look at verse 1. He rips up his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and goes to the house of the Lord. He's just acknowledging that he is a sinner in need of saving. And he needs God to save him. Look at verse 4. This is Hezekiah's appeal to God. It, it shows that he's understood something about God. He doesn't appeal based on his own performance. He don't, doesn't appeal based on his value, his, what he looks like, what he's done, what he brings to the table. Look at verse 4. It may be that the Lord your God will hear these words of the Rashikeh, 
whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore lift up your prayer to the remnant that is left. See, he appeals because he doesn't want God to be dishonoured. Instead, he wants God to honour himself to be lifted up. He recognises that God alone will be lifted up. And look at the end of verse 4. Do you see he makes mention of a remnant, a people left over? Should ring bells for us as earlier in Isaiah, in chapter 10, we're told that there'll be a remnant, a leftover people. That's the language, how God will preserve for himself a small portion of the people of Israel. And look, here's the response for humbled Hezekiah. Have a look at verse 6. Isaiah says to tell him, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, which, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled him. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumour and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. That's the message to humbled Hezekiah. God says, I'm going to deliver you. When you're in that moment of despair, it reminds us that it's a God who cares for his people. Here in that moment, there is hope in despair. Even in the most unlikely situation with people at the gates, it looks pretty hopeless for the people. But God says, I will deliver you. But you see, for humble Hezekiah, in order to cling to this God who saves sinners, he needs to address God and admit his failure. We need to address God and admit failure. Because this is a God who saves sinners. But in order to have that rescue, we need to realise and recognise that we are in desperate need. I wonder, even then, as I ask, what it is in your life right now that feels overwhelming. Is there something going on right now that you need to humble yourself before God and say, I need you to rescue me. Come before him and admit that you cannot do it by yourself. Come before God and admit that you need his help. There's scene three, humbled Hezekiah. Let's look at scene four. Assyria is undeterred. See, the Rabshakeh returned to find the king, just as God's promised, embroiled in all this kind of military action. There's some kind of altercation going on that you can see. But look at verse 10. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. See what's going on? He's gone back to the king of Assyria. And instead of Assyria being, oh, you know what, God's on your 
your side. We've got loads of stuff going on. We'll take it all back. No, Assyria is undeterred. Sennacherib is sure of himself. They're going to keep going. They've got all the firepower and they're keeping on squeezing in on Jerusalem. They're already plotting their next raid. And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he wants to make it clear to the people in Jerusalem, no, no, your God will not see you through. He wants to remind them all the other gods, they just didn't stand. His message for Jerusalem, don't buy it. Don't believe the messages you're getting from your God. Are you really going to trust in him? Do you really think he's going to deliver you? But maybe, maybe you're standing room this afternoon and there's something going on right now, but that issue is so consuming. It's, it's rocking your world. Maybe it's causing you to doubt God. And ask that question. Is God really looking out for my good? Is God really going to look after me and protect me? Is God really going to deliver me from this? What do you do in the face of despair like that? few years ago I was um, working for a previous church and there was two towns, Letchworth and Bullock, separated by about a mile and there was young people in our youth group from both towns and I was driving one night from Bulldog to Letchworth to drop some of the young people back at their house and um, I drove uh, the most direct route uh, which was over the motorway bridge, big motorway uh, bridge, uh, the A1M, big junction and we were driving in the car, and four people in the car, and we drove, literally coming up to the motorway bridge, going around the roundabout, traffic lights were red, and there was a motorbike just pulled off, right up onto the curb, on the actual bridge of the motorway. Now it was a dark, cold night, and I stopped, I pulled over to see what was going on. I don't normally do that, I don't really know what I did. And um, so I pulled over, and I got out, and by the time I got out of the car, walked around the front of the car, and gone over to the bike, this um, young guy was away from his bike and was stood on the barriers of the motorway bridge. He had one leg either side on the second rung of three rungs of the um, barrier. And he was stood right hanging over the A1M. We obviously tried to help as much as we could. Uh, we from the police and we um, began speaking to this guy Gavin and, and you can imagine the chaos of the moment. There he was in quite busy times with his life hanging in the balance. The uh, police swiftly closed the A1M both directions and then in came a negotiator and took, um, took control and we were asked to drive away. And it was a bizarre feeling driving away from this young guy, Gavin, that we got to know very briefly, that life seemed to be in the, in the balance. And as we drove away, I had these four young guys in the car that I realized had been watching the whole thing, obviously very aware of what they were seeing and what was going on. And so I pulled over 
and got them out of the car and just asked them, looked them, looked them in the eye and said, um, are you okay? Shall we talk about what just happened? And the first thing that any of them said, a 16-year-old, said, we must pray. We were so humbled. Because in those moments, there was nothing we could do, really. We, even then, as we drove away, there was literally nothing we could do. It was in God's hands. Look, scene five is a prayer of faith. Because Hezekiah, he's humble. He recognises that there's nothing he can do. It's in God's hands. He simply must pray. He spreads before the Lord what he's heard. And look, maybe that sounds pretty routine to just spread before the Lord what he's heard. But do you see the difference? Have a look back to verse 1. It's not complete despair anymore. He's not ripping up his clothes. It's not desperation. Instead, in the face of the same threat, a, a real threat, people at the gates, Hezekiah is humble enough to know that it's out of his hands. He must pray. And he knows that it's in God's hands. He approaches God with his petition. He acknowledges that the Assyrians are a real threat. Look at verse 20. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are alone. And do you notice what you alone are the Lord, sorry. Do you notice what's in focus for Hezekiah? That people will see that you alone are the Lord. That's what Hezekiah wants. It's an appeal based on God's character. Here's maybe what's a bit surprising to us. God is God-centred. He cares about his own glory, his own name. We've seen that actually consistently through Isaiah. But you see, the God-centredness of God is good news for us. Because his character, we see throughout the Bible as he reveals it to us, he is a saving God. It's who he is. God saves sinners. He cares desperately for his people. And that means Hezekiah and you and me, in the midst of despair, we don't approach God based on how worthy we are to be looked after. We don't approach God on, on what we might be able to offer him. It's not about what we deserve in those moments. But God is displaying his character. He is bringing himself glory. He is showing himself as a saving God who loves to save sinners. And that, that radically transforms the way that we come to him with our petitions, the things that we ask for. We don't just need to pray for things that will make us comfortable, things that we really want to get this, to have that. But we can pray that God would show himself as a God who saves sinners in the despair, the brokenness, the pain that life brings. 
would he be glorified and I be satisfied as he is shown to be the good God that he is. Because look, here's what happens next. God keeps his promise. Look at verse 32. In a sentence, here's the answer from God. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a brilliant picture, what a brilliant phrase, a band of survivors. That's what's left in Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah promised, as Isaiah wrote, that was promised in chapter 11, verse 1, that's on our cards, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. God saves sinners. It's what he does. He does it miraculously for this tiny remnant of Judah in the battle against the Assyrians. And he does it miraculously for us. Because Jesus came forth from Jesse. He lived perfectly. He bore fruit. Where God's people time and time and time again in, in the Bible and now as well could be called unfaithful failures. The Lord Jesus lived perfectly. His death and resurrection was the final full rescue plan for his people. See, we can come to God in faith like Hezekiah because we know that he will deliver us. Not because he's going to strike down every army that's around the corner, but because he has provided the Lord Jesus to rescue us, to bring himself glory as a God who saves sinners. And he transformed his people to be more and more like the Lord Jesus. So when you're struggling, when it's really, really tough, will you trust in a God like that to deliver you? Will you trust in the God who has given the Lord Jesus for you? The question from the rapture came for us. In whom do you now trust? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much that we can trust you to deliver us. Father, thank you that time and time and time again you have shown yourself to be God who saves sinners. Father, thank you that you provided the Lord Jesus for us as our great rescuer. Amen. Well, we're going to sing together of the Jesus who does it for us. I'm going to sing marvelous.